Hello and welcome to the Owl Hoot podcast with me, Caroline Norbury. In each episode, I chat to amazing guests with way more expertise than me on topics covering the environment and sustainability. You'll get to hear the facts on climate change, biodiversity loss and pollution, as well as discover the fabulous actions that individuals and organisations are doing to mitigate and adapt to our changing world. I don't know about you, but I find it reassuring and hopeful that there are so many capable people out there doing great things for our planet, as well as inspiring me to get on and do my bit too. So without further ado, let's get on with this week's episode. Joining me today on the podcast is Helena Craig, Chair of Black to Nature, an environmental organisation set up by her 19-year-old daughter, Maya Rose Craig, known to many as Bird Girl. The organisation campaigns for equal access to nature for everyone, particularly for those within visible minority ethnic communities. In addition to campaigning, its activities involve running nature camps and arranging race equality in nature conferences. Helena has supported Black to Nature since retiring as a solicitor from a Bristol firm where she was a partner. I'm very much looking forward to chatting with Helena about her interest in nature and the importance of equality, diversity and inclusion in solving environmental issues. Welcome, Helena, to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. You are welcome. Uh, so I'd like to start just by getting a bit of a feel for you for you and your background, because Black to Nature hasn't always been in your life. So it'd be great to find out a bit about your career and your interest in nature and how Black to Nature started. Yeah, so I have, I'm from Bristol and I grew up um, in sort of pretty central Bristol, not too far from St Paul's. My dad owned a restaurant and um, worked really hard and sent us to private school because the local secondary school wasn't very good at that time and and so we sort of I grew up not really thinking that I wasn't really engaging with nature at all and it was only later that um I met my husband Chris who was sort of he's a mad sort of bird watcher and stuff and I was like oh you know I'm that's fine you're going to do your own thing but I'm not gonna go bird watching sounds really boring and um, and so it wasn't until much later uh, when Myro started talking about and thinking about why there weren't more minority ethnic people or any ethnic minority people out in the countryside and in, and in natural environments. And um, it was only at that point that I sort of was able to sort of reflect and think, no, you know what, we, we did used to go out and play cricket and play football in sort of green spaces, but, but I didn't really think of it as um, going out into nature because it wasn't how I imagined it to be you know for, in terms of like white British communities and going out and using binoculars and looking at birds and identifying them and stuff yeah so I became a solicitor in my 20s actually after I had my oldest daughter um, Aisha and um, I worked in it Bristol firm, it was sort of like a private client firm for about, oh, I don't know, 15 years. And I was a partner and I headed up the biggest department. And at one point we had sort of 120 people in the department. And at that point I'd done a lot of uh, recruitment. And so when I joined the firm, there was one um, other minority ethnic person in the whole firm. And um, 
you know, apart from that, there was nobody. And so I sort of set up like um, a trainee scheme for people who had joined the firm as paralegals and could work their way through and qualify. And we had a lot of um, solicitors qualify in that way because previous to that, the, um, the way that the firm recruited trainees was um, very straight jacketed. It was sort of one very traditional solicitor who dealt with it all. Um, and literally your application went in the bin unless you had like a first from a Russell group um, firm. And then, and that was pretty much the only criteria. And so we ended up with a lot of um, solicitors who were very academic terrible with clients and not able to think about the bigger picture in terms of the the, um, firm being a business so um, and almost like they didn't understand why they should be thinking about business in their jobs so those it's great that a lot of those um, sisters are still around in Bristol and um, and what was interesting actually when we when I set up this um, trainee scheme was that the other departments, the other departments that were really traditional, didn't want to take these trainees. And it was only because we were sort of I was bringing in sort of the biggest section of profits into the firm. And we had a lot of work at that point that it was like, right, OK, well, we can't carry on running unless we can recruit people who are coming to us because they want to be able to apply for a training contract you know so they had to sort of give in really because you know it was sort of needs must but what was interesting was that um, a lot of these trainees you know they had a lot of life skills they maybe were supporting their entire family through that when they were you know doing their degree and postgrad and just had a lot to them because they've had to deal with a lot of challenges in their life and um, so when they went in these departments the contrast between them and the academic solicitors with FIRST was huge and actually um, these the traditional departments loved them and quite a lot of them were kept on within those departments so I think I suppose it was like demonstrating in in a practical way actually you know these people might not have you know the best degrees but they've got a lot that you might want from a solicitor so anyway all of that is very similar to the um environmental sector very similar kind of people um and very similar kind of attitude so um it's been really helpful in terms of trying to make the environmental sector diverse yes and i imagine that's with the current numbers as they are in terms of diversity, that's going to be quite a challenge. It's it's very interesting that you draw upon the parallels of your own experience in a completely different sector. And you've obviously accomplished it. I imagine it, although you've, you won them over in the end, it probably was a little bit frustrating, was it, through that process? I think that as a minority ethnic person growing up in the 70s, and um, early 80s has huge amount of racism in school and generally in life and actually I don't think things are any better I think things are maybe even worse you know in schools but I think all of that you know it makes you just get on with things I think and I think that's part of 
what the issue for me was that I was so used to just I don't know letting people get away with racism uh, or just you know or being annoyed about it but not actually doing anything or feeling disempowered and I think that what Maya you know what Maya Rose has taught us really you know those of our generation is actually you don't have to let it go you can you know deal with it you can raise it you can you know deal with it you know um sort of head on and not always but where it needs to be and um and I think that's uh really important and I think I mean you know looking back so you know so many things said and done and not just in terms of racism but sexism because you know law is very traditional and um but the people in it I would say a lot of them I don't know in the 90s a lot of the people who were sort of going into law saw themselves as sort of a little bit left leaning liberal and you know and that they couldn't possibly be racist or they couldn't possibly behave in a way that was um inappropriate so and I think that is where the similarities with the environmental sector come that um people are you know there's a lot of ignorance and there's a lot of inability to actually say okay you know maybe I am getting things wrong and we do need to change or not just that we need to change but we need to do things very differently to make that change you know where we've got a sector that is only 0.6 percent non-white I mean that's the only sector that is worse is um, gardening so even farm ownership is better you know is better and um you know things aren't gonna the the some of the issues are that you know in terms of racism and experiencing that through my life it continues you know i think maya rose experiences racism probably direct racism on at least on a month a monthly basis and you know occasionally she'll write and then nothing comes of it and nothing is ever dealt with but often it's just you, you just get to the point where you sort of think that you're going to upset people so much that you just exclude yourself from the conversation, which is what, you know, if it's, you know, a news organisation or whatever, then that's likely to happen, isn't it? Mm. So in terms of uh, Myro's beginning to recognise that there was a disparity in, in green spaces and asking the question as to why, and then getting on this sort of journey of trying to make change did you have to prepare her for the facts because I imagine putting yourself out there then also draws in perhaps more abuse is that is that the case yeah for her it's massively the case she's had you know uh, racist trolls trolls generally who get very aggrieved if you accuse them of being racist when they clearly are and it's like well okay so you are choosing the only person you're you know being abusive to is you know a couple of tv presenters or maybe one or two tv presenters and my rose and she's like young female and not white and so you know right so you're saying oh you're you're abuse of her or the 300 message you know tweets you've tweeted you know that are abusive about her that's just happened to be somebody who's female and you know and minority ethnic 
So, um, yeah, so she's had a huge amount. She's had a huge amount of people standing up for racists, saying, oh, you know, he's just not, you know, he's just raising valid issues. And it's like, right, okay, well, you know, at what point does it become harassment? So, so, um, yeah, so she's had, you know, trolls from America after Trump um, got in, just, it's just, I suppose it's just what it's like on Twitter, but you're, it, you're sort of sucked into this thing that as an activist, you have to be on social media. And if you're not, then people use social media as a barometer as to how good you are. Yeah. So um, if you haven't, and the thing is, you know, some of the things that Myro's experiences, I mean, even just looking at who's prepared to follow her. So you know, a lot of, she's got some bird watchers who follow her, but a lot of bird watchers who don't, and, you know, but follow other young people, and, um, you know, and there's a lot of sort of like, oh yeah, well, why would I want to follow you and be lectured on race, and, it, oh, you know, and it's like, so it's not even people who are like silent on it, they're actually very vocal mm-hmm. um, about it, so um, yeah, so I think that a lot of the system and and in terms of whether you get um asked to take part in things is very skewed against you if you're unpopular right that must be must be quite tricky if i could just take us back a little bit how did you go from a family of bird watchers (laughs) to taking on activism and setting up the whole bird girl and black to nature organization so I suppose I had been taking part in sort of some race work when I was at at work like with the law society and stuff and two of my sisters are very involved in race activism and one of them sort of I don't know known nationally probably and so there's sort of always been a lot of discussion about race but I'm not sure how much Maya was sort of witnessed but it was just around her I suppose and um so Bird Girl that was just uh we went away when she was when Maya was eight and uh she she was gonna she set up an email address to keep in contact with her friends and I think she just saw some posts and info about this girl who was a bird and a superhero and she just thought, oh, that's a good idea. I'm a bird, you know, I'm a birder and I'm a girl. So um, so that's where Bird Girl came from. It was just like something that she adopted when she was young. But um, so basically when, so Myra is always uh, a young person who was, she read a lot, she questioned a lot. We talked a lot about things and, um, you know, just, I don't know, like politics and communism and just things we talked a lot about things as a family and then she um so in January 2015 she was 13 and she read an article in an American magazine about uh camps that the that they held in America the ridiculous expense like two and a half thousand dollars or something for five days and they had all these bird activities bird watching activities and she was just like you know what um, this is really unfair you know we've got nothing here and at that point there were no bird watching camps at all so I just sort of said well you know 
you want to, you know, want a camp, you can just organize one. So basically that's what she did. So she organized this camp and there was a lot of the young people booked on were from Somerset. She used to go to, to like um, a monthly event, like to do with nature, it wasn't particularly to do with birds. So she had like, I don't know, 12 um, people signed up, but they were all white middle-class boys. And, um, and I think she just, I don't know really what the trigger was, but she just had a sort of epiphany, I suppose. And she just came in and just was like, you know what, I've got this totally wrong. You know, I need to get some minority ethnic kids from the city to come to my camp. And then she just, well, you, you know, just have to try and see what you could do. And she tried for about two weeks, didn't get anyone signed up, no interest at all. And then she talked to one of her aunts and um, we put her into contact with some people. And then she managed to get five boys come to her camp. So it was like, I don't know, um, 16 boys and her um, at this camp. So, so that's basically how it started. So she ran the camp. And then um, after that, she wrote to the uh, five biggest nature NGOs, basically saying, what are you doing about the fact that there's no minority ethnic people engaging in nature and you're not you know, attracting anyone, you're not um, connecting with anyone. And then they sort of all came back and said to her, well, why don't you come and visit us? And she just sort of said to me, well, I'm not going to go and visit anyone. I've got school. Um, and she sort of said, can't I just get them to come to, to me? all at the same time and so I can just have the same conversation with all of them because it's otherwise I'm just saying the same thing over and over again and I just said well that's called a conference and she was like okay so I'm going to hold a conference she said so she had a conference the following June and she had uh, 90 people come and half of them were from the conservation environmental sector and half were for, um, minority ethnic people um, who worked with different communities or in race or diversity. And um, I don't, I think it was probably the first time the two sectors had ever met. And so there was a lot of new information passed around. So, but the people who came from, from the conservation sector were all, you know, like junior. There was no one senior that, well, virtually no one senior at the conference. So, um, yeah, so just after the conference is when Maya set up Black to Nature. So she came up with a name and she set it up. And at that point, it was a sort of non-profit. And then it's just sort of grown. And I suppose, you know, we were really interested and did a lot of campaigning in terms of conservation anyway. So it wasn't that big a step to move from conservation to move to, move to racism and conservation mm. I certainly have found when I've started looking at different areas within the environment that everything is connected um, <laughs> in a very well I don't know whether it is complicated but you if you think you're just, just going to look at one thing you can't because everything is connected yeah. and in terms of race why do you think it is that the environment sector is so um, so low in terms of diversity? Lots of reasons. So I think the first is the disengagement of minority ethnic people or the historical disengagement in terms of nature. But I think that at one point I interviewed some elders and they were like, 
I don't know, in their late 70s, 80s, and they were all from sort of Caribbean, South Asia, and talking to them about their childhoods and, you know, what it was like. And they all had huge amounts of freedom and the ability to play after school every day, outdoors, swim in lakes, swim in rivers, in the sea, and just be outdoors. And then you had this sort of move to sort of moving to the UK in the 50s and 60s for a lot of them. And then, you know, they're working really, really hard because life was tough. And so, you know, they didn't see their kids They're working double shifts, you know, and there was no time. And I think that that's still an issue now where you have poverty and people working two jobs or three jobs and there's not a lot of time to spend with your family doing anything really. But um, I think that the main, one of the biggest issues is um, a lack of engagement with nature and not making nature relevant. And also having this mono-ethnic way that nature is, you know, is engaged with in Europe and, Amer and America as a result. So um, it's all like, you know, go out, have a look, identify, you know, that kind of sort of Darwin and Wallace kind of approach to looking at things. And so anyone who goes out and just sort of enjoys the view isn't treated as if they are engaging in nature. They're just like, I don't know, sort of definitely not engaging in nature. And um, so I think um, then because of all of that, historically, we've had a sector that's been totally, totally white. And because of that, there's a lot of ignorance and a lack of inability to engage communities because they have no way of understanding. So, um, and, and also, but there's a lot of arrogance within the, um, within the conservation and environmental sectors. So, because people see themselves as experts. So they see themselves as experts in everything. So, including what they're not experts in. And so there is very little change that happens. And even when the change happens, it's really slow and it's not necessarily the correct thing. So, you know, people just do, do what, they, what they think, you know, and with no expertise, in there and um that's really common so i think that that's why there hasn't been an awful lot of change and now there is a little bit of change happening but then people who are going into organizations are talking about the racism that exists and the you know ignorance um, and lack of education and maybe that's because a lot of people who go into not all but a lot of people who go into conservation grew, grew up in the city not in the city in the countryside and they you know you have this issue as, as a divide between country and city anyway so you have lower numbers of people from deprived backgrounds because it's not just looking at who's out there so many of the people so many of the young people who are there out there are go to private school or public school and it's like right okay so how do you stop perpetuating these issues but if you don't stop now you know the next generation come through and they're all public school and so what are they going to do they're going to behave in exactly the same way yeah so there there are quite a few issues but um 
you know when you when you look at what the issues are it's a surprise it's no surprise yeah you know but it is how it is what do you think needs to change to make that difference oh I guess there's changes rather than one change uh but what do you think what the I've talked about the barriers there what, what have we got to do to overcome that I think that um organizations need to listen to the experts and there are lots of people who put themselves out as experts but they're not and so you know people you need to be able to demonstrate that you're an expert and and maybe the people who are the experts are the ones who work in race and not in uh, diversity within the nature sector you know there's you know there are some people who are real experts and then there's others who aren't and particularly compared to the the um, you know people who are working in um, EDI in equality diversity and inclusion um, for big organisations and stuff you know things are happening but I think that also there's a there's an inclination to ask people to speak about it and then ignore them and just move on to the next person so next organisation so. You know, we've had lots of situations where maybe given lots of talks to an organisation, you know, a big organisation between me and my rose. And then you, you just read six months later that they partnered with someone else, you know, and it's like, right, OK, so we've given all that time for free. And also what happens is people want the advice for free. Right. So you'll get... Um, situations had a situation recently where we we were meant to be partnering with an organization in terms of um reaching out to a particular part of the sector but they were absolutely adamant that that the um webinar had to be free even though there would be lots of ceos dialing into that and so the expectation is that all the people who are on the panel for that webinar do it for free and it's totally objectionable more than objectionable for white people to expect minority ethnic people to educate them and not be paid for it yeah because all of the people in the audience they're all they're all there in their work time they're all being paid to be there and the only people who aren't being paid to be there are the people on the panel so um you know it's this kind of thing that is just makes me furious to be honest you know it's not about me because I you know but it's about how you know asking people to be on a panel for Mm. free it's you know it's very uncomfortable do you think that is because they are not getting why it would be apart from being morally right to have a diverse representation across our society uh, that they can't see I mean for me it's and do correct me if I'm seeing this in a in a very blinkered way but, but I just think we're in this environmental crisis across the world where we want everyone to buy in and to be part yeah. of the solution and how how are we going to do that if we haven't got everyone within the sector or every you know everyone given the opportunity to buy in if we're already yeah. excluding them the thing is, it's it's such a huge part of it. It's a huge part of what Maya talks about is um, this this whole issue of 
um, like huge portions of our um, society being completely excluded from the environmental sector, not really knowing anything about climate change, not knowing you know anything about um, the fact that flooding in Bangladesh or Somalia is being caused by climate change, and that actually they can protest and you know ask their MP to do something about it. That people just don't know, and um, you know we need everybody on board if we are to succeed because we're not going to get mostly we're not going to get politicians to take action unless they think that it's going to impact on their number of votes that they'll get um, or whether they get in in the next time or not so I think that you know it's really important but it's just only just starting to happen and I think you know I just think that 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 there is so much that's um, not happening within the sector and even at a high level even at a really big organizational level you know there's um things that are you know happening that um I don't know just really um really difficult you can't really talk about it because you're not meant to talk about it because it's you know if you say anything about any of these organizations obviously you're blacklisted but um you know which is what happened to my rose with a really big organization and I can't say who it is but, um, you know, member of staff basically said they'd been to a meeting and they'd been discussing Maya Rose and we're talking about how she was blacklisted because she was too vocal on race. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So, oh, okay. <laughs> but there's, you know, this is, um, yeah, but there's a lot of, a lot of it about, and then you have a look. I think that it's really important that, when you there's a lot of tokenism within the sector and what you find is that people are chosen who don't talk about race so you when you start looking at who's chosen for what you know if you're disruptive then you don't get chosen you know for things and so you know is it should I, i just find it really offensive to be honest to be not just for someone like Maya who's you know is disruptive but actually for the people who've been chosen for the wrong reasons. Mm. When you think of disruption I mean using your voice in a in a very respectful positive way I think it's quite quite a nice way to be disruptive (laughs) simply trying to put your message out there it it shouldn't be that shouldn't be that offensive should it um I think that um sometimes you know just being in the room is being disruptive because people you know watch what they're going to say okay um, in front of you so you know disrupting can be in all sorts of ways but that's, you know, that's no bad thing, is it? Making feel no. people feel uncomfortable because if we're going to change as a society, we've all got to feel a little bit uncomfortable about it because you have to reflect on what part you are playing in this, even inadvertently, you know, as, as me as a white person, I, I totally think, you know, it would be very, very easy to sidestep race just because it's, um, you know, I could quite easily say the wrong thing because I recognise that I am in a structurally white, privileged system. Yeah, but I suppose it's sort of, if someone was to take you aside and sort of say, oh, you know, 
I wouldn't use that language. Yeah, and you'd be like mortified, and you'd be like, oh, you know, yes, yeah, indeed. I'm like, um, uh, you know, and you you wouldn't make a big fuss out of it. Well, if you were anyone sensible, you wouldn't anyway. Sure. Just like, yeah. So it, I think the sector as a whole, you know, there's a there's a lot of, um, and it's not just race. There's sex, a lot of sexism. There's a lot of um, young women who sort of buy into that right you know that sexism and sort of I don't know just um how they are sort of I don't know make themselves more appealing I suppose sure and um you know it's it's um it's tricky because why should they why should not just why should they if you're in a professional environment why are you Mm. you know and I think it's um you know part of the whole social media thing but um yeah so anyway it's um I think there's I don't know where it's all going it's all there's a lot of talk a lot of hackathons and meetings and stuff going on but I don't know how much action you know is going on do you remain hopeful can you uh, you know uh, in terms of black to nature where do you see um, yeah I mean yourself going as an organization I think that we, we're gonna what we want to do is focus on getting young people out into the countryside and getting them engaged but we want to do more on uh, following that up and also um, having the capacity to be able to follow up with their schools because we talk a lot at the camps as well as about nature and the environment we talk about um, careers and racism in schools and things like that and so we have a lot of young people talking about the really quite blatant racism that they experience in school. And their parents are just like, well, that's life, just get on with it. You know, you go in there to get a good education because a lot of the time it's white schools and middle-class areas where they, they have um, minority ethnic kids bus in to have some kind of diversity within the schools in terms of stats but then they have teachers and people behaving in a really racist way towards them and um in terms of um lots of everyday racism but also um you know what subjects for a level they do and you know all this kind of stuff so we want to do more work following that up and being able to go back going back to the schools and saying well you know this is unacceptable you know you're getting all your you know we've spoken to six minority ethnic kids from your school all going into sick form all being told to do the three three subjects none of which are facilitating subjects mm-hmm. and um you know so we have had um teenagers who've, we've talked to and talked about talked to about facilitating subjects and they have no idea what that means and until we talk to them about it and then talk about, okay, what subjects could you do? And then come up with some good A-level subjects. And, you know, just um, got a couple of Somali boys, oh no, the Sudanese boys who were like, I don't know, being pushed into a really not academic arena, even though they don't well at GCSE. And then they went into school basically change their subjects academic subjects there was big hoo-ha about it from the school and now you know one's gone off to do law at Exeter and the other one's you know hoping to do law somewhere you know somewhere else so um and that was basically coming to the camps and 
you know, engaging with nature is, and the environment, there's a lot more to it because it's sort of, I don't know, just having um, goals. Just and helping them become being, aspirational. Yeah, and people just, having people who believe in you. Yeah. Um, and are listening. So, um, you know, so we, that's, I mean, that's what we hope to do a bit more of really, but um, That's yeah. positive. In terms of 2050 often is sort of cited as a target for many different things within the environmental sector. Yeah. How do you hope uh, in the next 30 years that, that diversity and inclusion and ethnicity will have evolved by that point? What do you hope it will be like in 2050? It's difficult because you, you have to be hopeful that it's going to be better. And in some ways, of course, it will be better. I hope that there'd be less violence um, out on the streets and stuff for minority ethnic young people. But um, I'm not convinced, I'm not convinced how much better it's going to be, to be honest. Um, I think the sector, the environmental sector may well be, I think it will be more diverse, but I think there'll be a lot of racism still within it. Mm. Um, I know it's like watching Malcolm X a couple of nights ago and I was just thinking, you know what, how much has really changed for a lot of black young men you know in inner city areas and um you know you hope it's going to be better but like at the I don't know, the last five years we've probably gone backwards significantly so it doesn't take much to you know for things to not be going forwards so um you know but i because you know i would have in the 80s i would have hoped that my uh, children didn't experience racism in school and yet the ex Maya Rose's experience of racism in school is was really really bad and um significantly worse than mine even though mine was really bad and so um you know who who knows whether there will, will actually be change because I don't see that much change happening yeah, I can see that's frustrating. I'll, I'll, I'll try and hold on to some hope. Uh, because of the time, um, I'm going to uh, wrap up here, but I, I hope to think on a, on a positive note, Rosie, well, we on, on a positive note, I think that there will be a lot more minority ethnic people get going out into nature and going out into the countryside and enjoying that. And um, that helping with their mental health and helping mm. with their physical health and like and you see that already in you know third generation and I think that as those third generation young people are sort of having children and stuff they, they're going outside and doing things and I think that's incredibly positive because it's going to bring same it's going to bring changes with it. Finally then Helena. Um... Okay. With your uh, involvement in nature and the environmental sector, I wonder if there's changes that you've made in your own life over the last 10, 20 years where you've thought, oh, this is a really positive step that that, and it could be anything within just engaging with the environmental sector. Yeah, we're all of us a lot more engaged with the climate change movement and environmental sector. I think we'd always been pretty good about just basic things like recycling but there were sort of lots of things that we sort of did like changing bank accounts and all that kind of stuff we're sort of doing 
more of it and doing more sort of making changes across you know I think it's really easy just to focus on you know one thing focus on your car and stuff and but I think there's so many other things you can do and energy changing over to um, renewable energy changing over your pension scheme bank accounts you know where you buy from who whose products you buy so um we're pretty engaged with all of those things we buy a lot of secondhand clothes um just you know don't buy much we're not consumeristic and stuff so those are the kinds of things we've been focusing on all sounds like you're covering quite a lot. So <laughs> well done. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks. Thank you so much for your time this morning. It's uh, okay. It's been really interesting talking to you. So thank you very much. Hey, you're welcome. I found this episode to be such a fascinating conversation. As a white privileged woman, I can only imagine what it's like to be of minority ethnicity, to have to deal with racism on a regular basis and to feel excluded. Helena, Maya and the Black to Nature team are doing a fabulous job of encouraging young people into nature and raising awareness for the importance of ethnicity, diversity and inclusion in environmental conversations and action. To find out more on Black to Nature and what Maya Rose is getting up to, see the links in the show notes. I'd like to thank Andy Shaw for audio editing, Jeremy Jones for providing the music, and to you for listening. Please do take a moment to subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast. It would be such a help. In the next episode, I chat with Andy Exums of Exeter Community Energy. Until then, bye for now. <laughs>